Hello, I'm Michael Ralph, and I am feeling stress about the safety of our healthcare workers. I'm Lolly DeRozier, and I'm feeling stress about juggling all the things. My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I am feeling stressed about not seeing my students. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, Ralph and I are drinking Nitro Hot Cocoa Imperial Milk Stout from the Southern Tier Brewing Company. Lolly is drinking Belgian White, a Belgian-style wheat ale from the Blue Moon Brewing Company. Whoa, there was a lot of nitro in that can. Uh, that, I had the same exact experience. I thought I was going to fuzz over. I thought it was going to yeah, spill. Exactly. Uh, so when I went looking for this and failed to find it, I, I wasn't sure if I was disappointed or not. Because stouts are not my favorite thing to begin with, but the idea of like a chocolate stout with marshmallow uh, overtones was, I, it was a little horrifying. Yeah, it pours like hot cocoa. Like it totally looks like melted ice cream. Oh my gosh, this tastes incredible. I mean, oh wait, I'll tell you how it is at the end, I mean. Uh, so what are we doing today, graduate students? Lolly DeRozier joins us as a guest host for this month's look at online teaching. The global pandemic of COVID-19 is affecting communities around the world, and many teachers are thrust into remote learning with little warning. First, we read a study on the impact of interactive content and student-controlled challenge level. We look at how teachers can choose content to help their students stay engaged. Later, we read a qualitative analysis of the stories of award-winning online teachers. We find lessons from their experience to guide our own attempts at remote instruction. Let's get started. This month, I'm joined by guest host, Lolly DeRozier. Uh, she is a K-12 science teacher and education advocate. Uh, welcome, Lolly. Thank you for having me. Uh, she has been teaching biological sciences for over 20 years and is currently a doctoral student at the University of Central Florida studying curriculum and educational psychology. Lolly is particularly interested in the intersection of science and visual art. Uh, we're really happy to have you. Welcome. Thank you. So the first paper we're going to talk about is titled The Role of an Interactive Visual Learning Tool and Its Personalizability in Online Learning, Flow Experience, and it's by Young Ha and Hyunju Im. And it's a paper that was uh, just published recently in March 2020, so very, very current in the Online Learning Journal. Yeah, both of our segments are going to be from this Online Learning Journal because the whole world is upside down right now, right? Everything is just a mess as we're dealing with uh, the global pandemic of the COVID-19 uh, disease that's going through many of our communities. And so as many, many teachers are making the transition, many of them um, involuntarily, we have to make the change to online learning. And so we're going to focus this month's show on issues related to teaching in that digital, remote, online space. And so that's, uh, that's what our papers are going to look like. And this is our first one. So uh, in, a, in a podcast first, I didn't read any of the research this, this, uh, this time. So uh, what did they do? What were they studying? So this first paper had two central research questions. Uh, and one was on how interactive online tools affect student experience in online learning environments. And the second was whether... 
a student's ability to change the challenge level of the online activity uh, affected their overall experience and their academic performance. And uh, it was broken down into, uh, if I remember correctly, this was the one that had like eight hypotheses. Yeah, they had they had lots of really deliberately laid out hypotheses, and they broke apart uh, the those two big themes: interactivity and customizable difficulty. Was kind of how I was thinking about that, and they broke them apart into how do those things impact things like attention and engagement and student curiosity. And I really appreciated they broke apart flow. A uh, flow is this idea of really being in the zone when somebody is focused and they're in it and they feel like this is hard, but they can do it. And, you know, the rest of the world kind of falls away and they kind of operationalize that, um, using ideas that somebody's feeling they're feeling content and they're feeling joy and they feel in control uh, you get that time dilation time is distorted because you know you hours go by you don't really notice it because you're so focused um you this, this singular attention on this one um satisfying and challenging task um and i want to just kind of point out all of those things are important and they are not to be completed with fun we're not talking about i'm 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 being entertained. I feel like I am being engaged. I feel like engagement is a good idea there. Yeah, the idea was a flow was something new to me. I I uh, hadn't read about that in any kind of formal research context before. So uh, I'm curious to read more about this topic. My experience with flow, I think I uh, I sometimes lose track of time when I'm practicing my cello and I'm just in it and I'm playing and you know my fingers are working and my arms are moving and and then it's like, well, it's we're we're done. It's time to go, or or I need to quit. And I'm like, really? Wow, I I was working. It was it was effort that I was putting forth into that, but it was just sort of an all-consuming concentration at the the loss of the rest of the world. And that's when I would describe that I'm in a flow state. So were they able to get students into this flow state? So that was something. It's, that was kind of interesting. So they, in the um, discussion, they do talk about uh, that some of the aspects of the study had showed significant effects on flow. And they specifically say that it um, improves student learning by reducing awareness of the physical surroundings. But I'm not convinced from what they reported that they actually measured this. Yeah, I am right there with you. The uh, And I think the details of the conditions are relevant and they're actionable for us as teachers as we're trying to make a choice for what we're presenting and what we're expecting of students in these online environments. And so they broke it apart into two um, relatively distinct studies that they reported together in this paper. Uh, so in the first study, and I'm going to just give you the, the general, the general um, version of it, they basically gave students one of two conditions. In one condition, they had gave them the opportunity to learn about uh, colors and color hues and color combinations um, with just what I'm going to call a wall of text. They just, here is a web page with all sorts of words on it. Read through this whole thing to know things. Uh, and they compared that to like an interactive, I think it was a Java object that gave them a chance to break open boxes and interact with um, with. I think there were graphics involved, although that wasn't wasn't as obvious um, for the same information. But it was like an interactive Java object. And what I'm thinking about comparing those two conditions, I think I, I call it a wall of nope, right? I think of a, a pile of nope, this big long text wall. That's that doesn't sound appealing or effective compared to all sorts of things. 
I think of it like in medical studies where, you know, you, your control, the control group is so often placebo, like give them nothing when like, it feels like this placebo was almost a punch in the stomach. Like, <laughs> it, it wasn't even nothing. It was just this terrible thing that obviously isn't going to work. Yes. And, and not only that, but also the subject matter that they chose, they chose um, a subject that is inherently visual. Uh, and so there were some elements of this that were good. There were some elements of this where, you know, you look at what um, Meyer did and you look at what Sweller did with cognitive load. So Meyer, his gig is multimedia learning and Sweller's um, on cognitive load in the interactive elements where you have the text very close to the graphics, where you have material that's chunked, right? Information that's broken down into small chunks, all of that, like cognitively, there's a lot of evidence to show that that works, but it's an inherently visual subject. They're using color theory, right? I would be really interested to see what kind of results would be produced in something that is not inherently visual because in online learning, you, you know, you're constrained in this online learning environment and you have to teach all kinds of subjects, not just things that lend themselves to looking at a screen. Uh, that's an excellent point. That's, that's a fantastic point. I hadn't really thought about the visual nature of their subject. And that actually gives me some insight into one of their comments in the limitations section towards the bottom of the paper, uh, where they acknowledge some of the mixed results of past studies um, looking at these comparisons. And they said, well, sometimes this really mattered and sometimes it really didn't. And I feel like your comment the visual nature of the subject puts them squarely in the this is way better. Whereas, as you say, some other subjects that maybe don't lend themselves quite as well don't distinguish themselves quite as much from other other more obtuse, less effective delivery methods. Um, there's another piece of this that comes to mind, though, and that's just the weight of the task. The mechanism of delivery is related to, but not the same as, the amount of material, like the literal amount of material that you're trying to deliver to somebody. And I'm wondering if there might be some some interactions or some conflation between those two, because I'm willing to bet that students who are interacting with the interactive Java object probably didn't consume the same number of words as the students who tried to consume the wall of text. And so I'm willing to bet, and maybe that's a value of the interactive object. Like maybe that's a, that is a meaningful consequence of the treatment. I don't know. But thinking about the distinction between interactivity versus just quantity. Right. And, and the, the person's ability to hold unique pieces of information in their mind. Uh, especially if they're having to scroll through information. The other question that I had was, what was the level of difficulty, and maybe I just missed it, but what was the level of difficulty for uh, the control group, for the group of students that didn't have that um, in the second part of the study where they were able to choose their level of difficulty? So there was one group that had the control condition Students were being asked to sort color swatches is the short version. There was all these different hues of blue. And so um, in the the medium one, there was, I don't remember the specific number. There was a couple dozen. Yeah, there was two lines, one line, two lines, a whole bunch. Yeah. Yeah. So in the hard, in the hard one, there was a whole bunch of swatches they had to sort. And in the easy one, there was only a small number. And so in the fixed difficulty, everybody got the medium. Everybody got the, I think it was like 18 or something. I feel like there was some confusion related to the difference between doing something that is more complex and just doing more, especially in the hard condition. They're being asked to sort so many swatches that, yes, it's different sorting hues that are very similar. That is more challenging. But also you're just being asked to sort so many 
that that's that's a different problem sorting a lot and just do i even want to sort a lot like i might self-select something that's a quote unquote lower difficulty just so i don't have to sort so many right i just i just don't want to do that many yes i'm also curious about the gender makeup of the two groups there is some evidence to suggest that females are socialized uh there's the you know the there's not a lot of agreement on whether it's biological or socialization, but there is some evidence to suggest that females are uh, have a better ability to differentiate between shades of color. It's well, and so you know there are some there are some research studies that suggest that it's that it's biological, that it's strictly about um, the ability of women to perceive different shades of color, and then there are others that say it's socialization, that uh, little girls are socialized to. Uh, have uh, dresses and clothes and makeup and colors and and that they're just more willing to try to differentiate between those two. And so in their results, they saw some of the categories, they saw big differences um, between the groups, but a lot of the categories, a lot more than in study one, they didn't see, they saw differences that were not that big and that they deemed to be trivial. Um, And I think that that arises from, uh, it may be differences in their sample. I am certain it's got to be differences in just the weight of the task, just the quantity of sorting that they're asking of folks. Um, That's different from the difficulty. Can I ask a question? Sure. What did they measure? They delivered an instrument made up of, I want to say it was 12 or 15, uh, maybe 16 questions um, measuring four constructs. They gave a survey and then they uh, gave an assignment. And so grades on that survey and that assignment um, gave them the numbers that they compared. And then they used uh, Chromebox Alpha to um, uh, check reliability, inter-item reliability of the measures. And they uh, specifically say that they have good reliabilities according to the Chromevox Alpha value, which is greater than 0.7. Now, this is this is kind of a sore tooth with me because this is something that comes up in the literature a lot, uh, where everybody uh, says they look at the Chromevox Alpha value, and if it's uh, greater than 0.7, then they call it good. But there's actually not a lot of um, research-based evidence to suggest that that's a good cutoff. There's actually... Uh, if you go back to the original paper, a lot of these citations go back to a paper uh, by Jim Nunnally in 1978, and it was from a text uh, titled Psychometric Theory. And he actually specifically says that for applied research, the standard is much higher than 0.7, that it should be actually closer to 0.9. From my, uh, so far, as I'm listening to this, what I'm hearing is, we're not super confident about their statistical conclusions. And in their discussion, it seems like they're stretching to apply what they're measuring to the beneficial claims that they're making. And flow flow is a bunch of things, right? Flow, flow the, the name is appropriate because it is kind of a, like a hippie, trippy sort of interpretation of the student experience, right? It's their satisfaction. It's their motivation. It's their enjoyment. It's their assessment of how useful it is. It's all of those things um, that we sort of, I think, call engagement, right? We In the classroom, we just call that engagement. Are they engaged? Which is a term that's thrown around equally carelessly. Um, but, uh, so the, but this one aspect, they're specifically saying the students reducing the students awareness of physical surroundings. And I didn't see anything in the paper that indicated that they measured that at all. I mean, you, 
you talk about students are, are better learning biology, but we're not measuring all of their biology learning. I'm measuring their ecology and I'm just, I'm neglecting other pieces for the feasibility of the study. So I, so I'm not really worried about them omitting things, but they didn't like Lolly found they, they didn't, they said they mentioned it. Uh, but this is, this is a show about shoulds. This is a show about what do I do with this as a classroom teacher trying to teach without a classroom. And so uh, from that lens, I'm trying to think about what can I take from this? And I think that this is still instructive, if for no other reason than giving me some things to think about um, as I compare these different treatments. And I'm trying to put things from my classroom online, uh, because thinking about, am I giving my students a text wall? That's that's useful. Like that matters when I'm trying to put an entire quarter of material online in a matter of days. Like it could be very easy to miss. Oh gosh, I, I gave him a text wall here on this assignment. And so while in a vacuum, like in an academic setting, it's easy to say, yeah, that wasn't that, that's not the way to do that, but we're all just doing our best right now. And so that is a good thing to have attention called to it is say, be careful about managing just how much reading you're giving a student. Is there a way that you can give them an interactive object to, to consider this material rather than a big, long scroll of text? Uh, that's, that's useful. That's a should. Yes, I agree with that. The findings of the first part. So the first part of the study was about the interactivity aspect and its effect on flow. And the second part of the study was about the level of difficulty um, and its impact on flow. So as to the first part, when we're looking at interactivity, whenever you require students to do, right, that's always going to increase their engagement in, in the subject. That just, one of my main criticisms, criticisms of this study is there doesn't seem to be a lot here that different, actually in both papers, uh, all of this seems like good classroom practice, regardless of the format. It doesn't really seem to be unique to online learning. It's maybe you can make the case that it's critical to online learning because you don't have the teacher in the room, right? You don't have that personal interaction. Uh, but there, as far as what it reveals, there was there's not a lot here that's new. In the second part of the study, where they look at the ability of the student to choose the difficulty level of the activity, they did not find any significant difference in test scores between the two groups. And I think that's a really important finding because we want students to be uh, engaged, but if it doesn't affect their learning outcome, we have to really weigh whether that's a worthwhile investment of resources, both in developing them and deploying them to students. A piece of that I, that observation that mattered to me, and I also, I didn't find this in the paper, but I'd be curious to know how many students chose each level. I agree completely. And I am um, I tend to ground my approach to education in Vygotskyan framework. <laughs> so so part of, part of this framework is the idea of the zone of proximal development, which it really, you know, the, the idea of the zone of proximal development is that students learn best when they're in that sliver of space that's where they can't quite do it without help, right? That's, that's the place where the most learning takes place. But if we allow students to choose their difficulty level, I wonder how many of them would choose the one that challenges them versus the one that they feel comfortable with. 
especially in an online learning environment where they don't have that immediate um, intervention from the teacher or they can't have a formative assessment while they're doing the activity. It would typically be revealed to the instructor after the fact. I think that's the critical observation is, um, you know, I have some experience of offering student choice in my in my high school classroom, but that was in my classroom. And as you said, we're in an online space. And so I, as a teacher, don't get fast feedback on the choices my students are making, not the same way as I can see them disengaging. I see this student is uninterested or they're they're in a place of unproductive struggle or whatever it may be. I don't get to see that same kind of rapid feedback the same way that the students, as you say, don't have this, this, the immediacy of support when they need it um, to the same degree. I have to be intentional about designing that. And so I'm, I think that you're right. I think that's an essential piece. If there's a possible benefit to this, I, I spoke about how the lack of, uh, I spoke about how the two groups performed the same on the achievement test. Um, given that this treatment is only really a benefit if satisfaction, which was shown to be significantly affected, affects the dropout rate. That's one of the things that they identify as being really problematic with online coursework is that there's a high dropout rate, students discontinue, or they simply fail to do the work. If this type of approach um, improves satisfaction such that it motivates students to continue, then I can see that being very beneficial, even if it doesn't show a significant uh, impact on their overall achievement. We're in this together. Our second segment this month comes to us again from online learning. This time we read award-winning faculty online teaching practices, elements of award-winning courses. By by Swapna Kumar, Florence Martin, Kieran Budrani, and Albert Ritzhout. Excellent. And this one is from 2019. Uh, This paper is pretty different from the one that we read in our first segment because this was qualitative research. What they did was they identified eight professionals who have a background in teaching online courses and are award-winning instructors for their online courses. And then they talked to them for a while about what those award-winning instructors thought made their courses so effective, or how do we differentiate between novice online instructors and expert online instructors. And so then our authors synthesized from those interviews to identify what are some really useful things that we think came out of those interviews. And I got to tell you, I loved this paper. That's fair. I, yeah, I appreciated the, it's in qualitative research, it's called Thick and Rich Description. Um, that they provided. It's, uh, I, I very rarely read papers that include that. So they talked to a bunch of experienced, celebrated online teachers to get, you know, distill some common themes for on, yeah. for guiding online instruction. Yeah. I think the, the least on the, the fewest years of experience in this group was 14 years of experience. And all of them had at least five years of experience teaching online. Uh, I love that they pulled lots of quotes from the interviews with specific examples of the kinds of instructional methods that these effective instructors were using. And so if I was a teacher who was uncomfortable or who was uh, didn't feel prepared or equipped to make the transition to the online environment, I feel like I would get a lot of really actionable ideas out of reading this paper. 
Well, what should I be doing then? Lawrence, to answer your question, there were five, quote unquote, award-winning elements uh, that came out of these interviews. And they were authentic and relevant course materials that connected to practice, the use of multimedia resources, student digital... uh, student creation of digital content, student reflection on learning, and instructor's explanation of purpose. So what jumped out to me right away about these five things is that these are all practices that are reflective of best practices in any learning environment. Even down to multimedia resources. Uh, it One of the things that they talk about is the difference between blended learning and online learning. So the students um, in this study, uh, the the teachers in this study are all students of undergraduates, if I understood correctly, right? It's all post-secondary students. Um, and 99% of schools, of universities, use learning management systems. So effectively, all courses are pretty much blended courses at this point. There really are no courses that don't use a large digital component to disseminate information, to communicate with students, to uh, post resources like videos, uh, articles, you know, all of those things that uh, particularly college students are getting. So um, so the, these five elements should be ubiquitous in classrooms, regardless of the format of the class. The first entry in that list, have authentic, relevant material. Uh, That's something that you have heard me say on this show more than once in past episodes. Um, And so I think a couple of their examples were really good, uh, mentioning having students consume uh, periodical material, uh, recent podcasts, recent newspaper postings, recent uh, professional organization uh, press releases and things like that, current data that might be emerging from situations, uh, being offering current contextualized material for them to analyze and work with is just a generally good suggestion. And I have certainly made it more than twice on this show. Uh, But there's something that I want to think about in this particular context. Um, During this pandemic, where so many people are currently affected by COVID-19 and so many more people are very likely to be affected even between now and when this episode drops, I think that we as teachers need to be really careful about asking students to try to academically analyze an ongoing crisis that is affecting people right now. Um, especially, I'm, I'm a biology teacher, and so there are some really compelling aspects of the biology of this virus um, that are really good exemplars of things like evolutionary processes and things like immune system function. Uh, however, if I'm trying to ask a student to dispassionately analyze how the virus gets into the lungs and destroys a person's ability to breathe, and I'm asking them to do that unbeknownst to me, half an hour after they find out that their grandparents are infected by this virus, that's a problem. Uh, That's something, if students have already experienced trauma due to this crisis, and I'm asking them to try to analyze in an academic way this thing that has traumatized them, that's very likely to re-traumatize them. That is its own harm. And so it's just something we've got to be really careful about asking students to try and go back and analyze a current outbreak. That's dangerous. Uh, I'm not saying that nobody can do it anywhere. I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't presume to make a blanket statement like that. We are all teachers and I trust your judgment. Uh, But that's something you've got to think about. 
Indeed. And that's, that is true even in more day-to-day situations. When we teach about cell division, inevitably there, we talk about cancer. So many of our students' lives have been touched by relatives and loved ones that have cancer that are currently undergoing chemotherapy. So we need to be sensitive to those kinds of messages. In those situations, I think that you can let the students lead the sort of the discussion regarding what content you can explore relative to those topics. When students are asking specific questions, um, I, I'm thinking of a student right now in my class whose mother has uh, has had cancer and is currently recovered, but she had lots of questions about cancer that she asked uh, over the course of time in my classroom. And instead of me assigning cancer to her, she led the discussion to the places that she wanted to discuss cancer. So I think there's a difference there between students using your classroom to explore something that they need explored as opposed to assigning to them um, this potentially traumatic topic to explore. I have a question for you about the framing of this paper. This paper specifically looks at eight award-winning teachers. The choice to look at award-winning teachers struck me as a little bit odd. It narrows the sample size down dramatically. Awards typically reward novelty. And novelty in educational settings is not necessarily uh, successful in the long term. So it, it kind of made me a little bit wary about, because the people who are often selecting awardees are not necessarily experts. And, and I have no way of knowing um, who were the people in charge of selecting the awardees for these, these things. But I was really curious why they wouldn't go with highly effective teachers. At universities all over the country, every department does evaluations of their faculty. They rate their faculty based on a number of metrics. Uh, so why wouldn't you go with that sample? So the idea is that, hey, we're in this world where it's online learning and we want to um, share stories. This is, as with qualitative data, this is about stories of success. This is about stories of practice. And narrative is really important for the human understanding of uh, your identity and the universe in which you live. And so narrative has value. And so this is really about sharing narratives that are perceived to be successful. And so award-winning has a narrative appeal, a framing it as award-winning immediately presents a, a cell, if you will, that um, maybe some kind of standardized test measurement doesn't. There were two aspects of this paper that I wished the authors had given, frankly, most of their attention to. And that was, one, the role of multimedia developers in online elements for, for instruction and for teaching and learning. And two, the design practices of experienced online teachers. Because as I mentioned before, most of these effective elements of online learning are effective elements of any classroom. 
So really the, the two things that stand out to me are how the design thinking for a traditional classroom setting is so different for the design thinking for online instruction and how the, the platforms, the tools, the extensions, all of those media that we use in the online format that are developed for us by developers who by and large are not educational experts, um, really, really influences what we're able to do and how we're able to implement online education. So I would really love to see a paper or two papers that focus just on those aspects, because I think that any reasonable teacher with experience could identify those other things and say, yes, those things are great. Those things will improve learning. They will improve engagement. They will improve outcomes for students. But it's really these two, the multimedia development, the people behind those development, and the design practices of the teachers when they're setting up their courses uh, that's going to make or break it. Online is fundamentally different teaching than in a classroom. And I think that's a dramatic and impactful observation that's easy to miss at first blush. Um, this is an emergency time. This is a crisis and we're all just doing our best. And right now the name of the game is grace and forgiveness and flexibility. And so every teacher is just doing their best and I, I'm there, I'm in that place. But for teachers who are trying to do better, what are you thinking about that you can do that's the next thing? What's the next improvement? I think understanding the fundamental differences in online learning versus classroom learning. And so discarding some really deeply ingrained assumptions about instruction that come from a career in a classroom are, is a great first place to be. And there's something I want to point out from the table um, about the, just the characteristics of the teachers that they included in this sample. If you look at the modality of teaching of all eight of these teachers, there isn't a single blessed one who teaches entirely in synchronous instruction. Not a single one. And qualitative instruction is not designed for generalization. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. But all of them are either 100% or to some extent asynchronous instruction. And so I want to make a pitch because there is a should here that is, this is confirmation bias. I've got to acknowledge I have a bias here. But I think from an equity standpoint, as teachers, we have to work to make as much of our online instruction asynchronous as we can. I'm going to say that. Because yes, we had a time scheduled in our lives to be together and to have this conversation in a classroom where we could interact and we could work together and it was reliable and it was consistent and it was safe. And that was pre-pandemic. And that's not the world we live in now. Because that student who used to be available to be in class is now caring for their younger siblings, is now caring for their older relatives, is now going to work to try to make the money to pay for the new needs that the family has that weren't present before. They're just navigating the stress and trauma associated with being involved in a global pandemic. I agree. And I appreciate that you brought up the equity aspect of it. Access, whenever we talk about digital environments, I think institutionally and administratively, there's often assumptions that are made about the kinds of access that our students have to technology and the comfort level they have with using it. I think the the myth of the digital native needs to die. It's it's awful. That was another topic we've done. So yeah. It's, you know, there there is very little correlation between uh, casual users or users of digital media for entertainment and their abilities to uh, learn 
in those types of environments to self-motivate, to self-organize, to self-pace. None of those things are um, strongly correlated. And, and it's, it's time that we start that those of us who do read the research start really banging the drum about that. Uh, There's another piece from that list that, that they laid out and that you identified that I think um, is maybe less obvious or maybe even a little bit less comfortable um, in some settings. Uh, but their their fifth item here is explanation of purpose. And I think that that's especially important in an online environment. And I've kind of lucked into this in some settings just because I'm kind of disarmed and I'm, they're like, what's the deal with this assignment? I'm like, okay, here's here's what I'm trying to do. You help me find the words to describe it. But it's actually best practice is being really explicit with students about the purpose of the assignments you make. And I think that that can fit into the framework that they provide in the introduction of here's the primary content, here's the phenomenon we're considering, or here's how you understand this, this big picture idea, this real world application that we're, that we're trying to consider. These are the supports. If you're having trouble, you can come here or you can talk to me at these times or you can reach out in these ways. Being really explicit this is supplemental. This is core. This is essential. This will be a feed, a formative assessment. And here's what that means. Um, being explicit with students about what things are available and what their purpose is in your online environment is going to reduce their anxiety and their cognitive load in trying to understand what's going on on your platform. So they can just focus their energies on your content. So just be explicit, be transparent. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And if it's not doing what it's doing, let me know that so I can make changes and I can update and revise and we'll all get better together. Yeah, I agree. It's it's interesting when we try to take those ideas and scale them for my student population, which is 12 and 13 year olds, you know, managing undergrads, managing graduate students, managing uh, middle schoolers is very different. Um, so trying, I agree, it's very important to be intentional and explicit with students, but even this is something that we saw this week, my school, this was our first week of online teaching full-time. And one of the things that came up at our teacher meeting at the end of the week was, um, how many instructions we're trying to give our kids, because even in just trying to explain to them what it is that we're trying to do, we're overwhelming them with information. So that has been a really difficult piece for me to manage as a middle school teacher is to uh, frame appropriately uh, the things that I'm trying to do to help them. Intent matters. So our third segment, this has become in the news because the most relevant thing happening in, I think, a lot of our lives is the pandemic of COVID-19, the disease. And so a piece of what I wanted to think about for a few minutes together, we are are three science educators here in this meeting, is kind of just where are you getting your information? Where can people turn if they're feeling stressed or worried or um, maybe wanting to find more information on what's happening is just... uh, Media literacy is really important right now. A lot of people are talking about aspects of the outbreak and the pandemic, and some of those sources are really problematic. And so if we can make any recommendations to listeners who maybe want some help filtering through the noise, can we can we take a moment to try and offer some some assistance in how we're navigating the deluge of information, some of it good, some of it not so good? 
I am, but I try to stay away from the 24-hour news cycle. So I don't, that's not my go-to source for information. If I want data, I typically go to the CDC site first. Uh, there's a, um, a couple other reliable SciComm people that I follow on Twitter that I might seek out. As far as long-form pieces, uh, Ed Young is, uh, he writes for The Atlantic. Um, he's actually come back to The Atlantic in the midst of this outbreak to do uh, COVID-19 coverage for them specifically. And he wrote a book a couple of years ago called I Contain Multitudes, which was about the microbiome, uh, which is excellent. And he his pieces are always in-depth, very well-researched, um, very dispassionate in, in um, reporting information, but uh, definitely have a strong point of view and, and very trustworthy, in my opinion. So he's my go-to guy, Ed Young. Yeah, what, what I shared with my students um, from the very early stages of this outbreak, even before it came to the United States, uh, was, as you say, the CDC and the WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, has information up. And even uh, a lot of the institutions where we work, I know KU, my institution, has a dedicated webpage with their ongoing policy changes and recommendations for personnel and expectations for what's happening in the semester. Um, a lot of the, our organizations, they're they're trying to put information out as quick as they have it. They may not have it as quickly as we'd like, but trying to pick up on the rumor mill, I think is really counterproductive. Make better mistakes. How was the beer? My beer was as predicted. <laughs> It's a, uh, it's, yes, it's my old, it's my old standby. It's a, uh, it's a good beer. It's very nice for day drinking. <laughs> well, we're gonna put a new spin on the uh, beer segment. We have in our employee now, Aaron Matthew. We have talked about him. He's been on the show. He's talked about beer with us before, and uh, sometimes we will say things about the beer we're drinking, and he will give us notes afterwards about how he's shaking our he his head and how we're getting it all wrong. So we have now officially employed him, and we have some a document about um, our beer of the month. Uh, Ralph and I are going to say what we our impressions of the beer, and then we will read his yet-to-be-read document. Uh, so Ralph... It's too sweet for me. Uh, I, I didn't particularly enjoy this, which is a little surprising because I drank it really quickly. Like I drank this one easier than many months, um, but it's really sweet. It feels like I'm drinking marshmallow. Uh, and so it's a it's a good beer. Like I don't think there's anything that's wrong with it, but it is certainly not for me. I'm a little more bitter in my preferences. This beer smells like hot chocolate. This beer feels like hot chocolate this beer tastes like hot chocolate yeah. uh it they nailed the title um the fact that it's a nitro means it's a little less acidic it's very very smooth almost almost flat like hot chocolate uh it's like if you took a hot chocolate and you left it sitting in the room for 90 minutes and came back and drank it later when it wasn't hot anymore that's what this is like which is just crazy so here we go what does what does our dear friend Aaron Matthew, our beer vizier, say? He says that it is a chocolate-dominant aroma. 
He says that it is a sweet and slightly creamy chocolatey beer flavor, very reminiscent of hot chocolate up front. It has a definite lactose sweetness with no hop flavor. There is a slightly bitter finish, uh, and the bitterness is from the dark malts rather than the traditional hoppy, hoppy bitterness, and its finish is fairly clean. Lolly, I really enjoyed having you as a guest this month. Thank you for joining us. If we have listeners who want to consume more of the things you make, write, or say, where can they find you out in the world? You can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at underscore adverbia. And you can also find me at curlyhairmafia.com, where I'm joined by two other awesome women of color who are also scientists, and we review movies and TV shows. We talk about science fiction, fantasy, and horror from the science perspective. And for everybody else out there on the world, we love having you join us every month. Remember that we're going to be here taping throughout the rest of this upheaval as we all do our best to help our students. So if you have particular questions or requests or suggestions for the literature we read to be useful to you, please let us know because this is better together and we are all in this together. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, struggle well, and document everything.